Our scripture this evening will be from Acts chapter 2. I discovered that uh, your pastor has also been preaching through the book of Acts. And I even discovered that the pastor at Emmanuel Fellowship is also preaching through the book of Acts. So there's been a lot of preaching on Acts lately. And God in his uh, providence has orchestrated all these things. So Acts is the, is the book for us. But anyways, uh, we'll read Acts 2 and I'd like to begin with Peter's sermon which starts in verse 14, Acts 2 and verse 14. So this is after the the mighty rushing wind, or the sound of the mighty rushing wind has come. The people have been speaking in other languages. The tongues of fire have appeared upon their heads. And you'll know that some of the crowd there have have said, uh, these people are drunk. They're speaking in other languages, and uh, they've come to the conclusion that... These people have drunk too much wine. And now Peter responds to them. Acts 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So far the reading of our scripture then. My friends, this amazing baptism with the Holy Spirit has taken place in the life of uh, the church, the early church of this time. And now Peter stands up to defend them against the slanders of those who said that they've drunk too much wine. And this is such a wonderful passage of Scripture for us because here we have on the pages of Scripture a sermon. We have an exposition of the Scripture. And this is very meaningful for us because we listen to preaching. And we actually listen to a lot of preaching, don't we? Every Sunday, twice, 45 minutes, we sit and we listen to sermons. And the next week, more sermons. And the next week after that, more sermons. And some of us may even choose to listen to sermons during the week. Secular people look at that and laugh. That is ridiculous. That is absurd. Why would you sit there and listen to a man drone on and on about Scripture, about some ancient book? And maybe... Maybe that thought even rises in our own minds sometimes, doesn't it? Like, and many other churches have worship services, right, with not nearly as much preaching in the services as we have. Is this really so critical that we have so much preaching in our churches? And so this passage of Scripture is very interesting to us because now we have a sermon, right, that is given us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. In other words, we have a sermon given us unlike any sermon I've ever preached, right? And the Holy Spirit himself has, you might say, put his stamp of approval on this sermon, that this is a sermon that is truly biblical, not in the sense that it's an exposition of Scripture, all our sermons are expositions of Scripture, but because the Holy Spirit has put his stamp of approval on this sermon. And so it's interesting to us, who highly prize the preaching of God's Word, to think about preaching in the light of this sermon that we have from the Apostle Peter. So Peter has given us this sermon. Now, most uh, sermons, and we should certainly say that every good sermon, will cohere, will center around a single point of Scripture. I'm sorry, a single point. It may explain many Scriptures, but it will cohere around a single central point. And that's what we have here in Acts 2. And if you look at verse 36, you'll notice that it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now there's the central point. If you said to Peter, now Peter, sum it all up for me. What's the point of your sermon today? This is what he would say. God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ. That is the central point of Peter's sermon. Now I'd like to look with you then at these scriptures that Peter quotes in the sermon. You know that every sermon, right, is going to be an exposition and an application of some part of the Word of God. Every sermon will be that 
any sermon that doesn't have the Word of God as its content is not a sermon. So Peter teaches us already from the very beginning that preaching is an exposition and an application of the Word of God. And Peter quotes two scriptures in this sermon, and I'd like to look at both of them with you. Now, the first sermon that we have given us here is his quote from the prophet Joel. And you can see that he begins that in verse 16. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, why does Peter bring up this quotation of Joel? Why does he quote Joel? Well, the reason is very simple. Because the people have suggested that the reason there's all this confused babble of everybody speaking different languages and all through each other is because they are drunk. But Peter now responds to that, and he says, no, first of all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But now Peter says, no, this is not drunk. This is not the behavior of a drunk person. This is God doing what he promised to do already back in the prophet Joel. That's why he quotes the prophet Joel here. That's what he says in verse 16. But this, in other words, what you are seeing and hearing, is what was uttered or prophesied many years ago by Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Well, says Peter, what Joel prophesied is what you are now seeing and taking place. God is pouring out His Spirit upon His church, upon His people here. Now, I have one more thing I want to say about Peter's quotation of Joel. You'll notice, and this may have uh, caught your attention, that in verse 17, Joel, Peter quoting Joel, says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Some translations say, on all mankind. Now, what does that mean? My friends, one thing we can say when we, when we interpret Scripture, when we read Scripture, it's very, very rarely does the Bible, when it says all men or all mankind or all flesh, very rarely does it actually mean every single person head for head that's ever lived on all the face of the earth. Clearly, it can't mean that here, right? Because God did not pour out His Spirit upon every single person that was then living on the globe. Clearly, by all flesh, what the prophet Joel and Peter quoting him means is all kinds of flesh. In fact, if you go back in the chapter, you can see the kinds of people he's talking about. Right? In verse 9, he talks about Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya and so on. Right? All these different places. These were Jewish people of the diaspora that had come from all these different places and were now gathering in Jerusalem. And Peter is saying that God has poured out His Spirit on all flesh. In other words, on all kinds of different people. No matter what ethnicity or no matter where they may have come from, God is pouring out His Spirit upon them. So I want to make that clear about that comment or that statement in Joel of the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh. But again, to review then, the prophet Joel is quoted by Peter to prove that what is happening here is not drunkenness, but God is inaugurating His new covenant by pouring out His Spirit upon His people. Well, then let's move to the next quotation because this one is considerably more difficult. 
you'll notice then after he quotes Joel that he immediately begins to speak about Jesus. You can see that in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus. Isn't that interesting, my friends, that in an in a, uh, event where the Spirit of God is being poured out upon the people, it's not the Holy Spirit who's in focus here, but it's Christ. That already teaches us something, doesn't it? That the Holy Spirit is always, His ministry is always to lead us to Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't put the spotlight on Himself. The Holy Spirit always brings us to the feet of Jesus. And so Peter, you can see Peter believes that as well. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So now the rest of the sermon is going to be about Jesus. Now as Peter is speaking about Jesus' death, his burial, he gets to his resurrection. Now throughout, and I think probably you'll remember this from your own pastor's exposition of Acts, is that whenever there's a sermon or a speech in Acts, and whenever the preacher mentions the resurrection, immediately people begin to get angry. Immediately people begin to leave. Immediately people begin to walk away. That always seems to be the dividing point. As soon as the pastor, as soon as the preacher gets to the resurrection, whether it's Gentiles or whether it's Jews, they're done with him at that point. It seems that they can listen to everything that the preacher might say about Christ But when the preacher starts about the resurrection, that's a problem. So naturally, Peter, knowing his audience, he is concerned to prove the resurrection. How can he he demonstrate, how can he make an argument that Jesus really did rise from the dead? Well, remember, Peter here is speaking to Jewish people. And if you're going to make an argument with Jewish people, what do you do? You quote scripture. Remember that Peter and his audience both share this conviction that the Bible is the word of God. And therefore, Peter is going to quote scripture. And now remember, he's quoting scripture to prove to these people that Jesus rose from the dead and he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. So with that in your mind, then, let's look at this quotation from Psalm 16. And I think I see, uh, I, I see five points of argument that Peter is going to make from this quotation from Psalm 16. Follow me closely here. This is a very logical argument that Peter is making. It's a tightly logical argument. Now, in the first place, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. And that begins in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Now what hope? Verse 27 gives us the content of his hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Hades in Greek or the place of the dead, right? The grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So the first point that we can say is that David says that God is not going to leave his soul, his body, to decay in the grave, but he has given him this hope that he's going to raise him from the dead. He's going to come back to life. So that's the first point in Peter's argument. David is clearly teaching that God is going to raise him back from the dead. 
Now, Peter's second point is given us in verse 29. Look at Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So now Peter goes on to say that David could not have been speaking about himself in that psalm. Because after all, David's body died, was buried, and we all know where his grave is. And at the time when Peter was giving this sermon, he could have taken them to the grave of David. It was a well-marked location. I'm told that there's still a spot in Palestine where they believe David was buried. But you see the logic now of Peter's argument. David says, God is going to, he's given me this hope. My flesh will, will rest in hope. I'm not going to stay in the place of the dead, but God is going to bring me back from the dead. Well, says Peter, David obviously cannot be speaking about himself because he's still in the grave. We know where David is buried. That's the second point of Peter's argument here. Now I come to the third point of Peter's argument, which is given us in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, that is because David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Well, says Peter, we all know that God promised to David that one of his children, one of his sons, would be sitting on his throne forever and ever. In other words, the dynasty of David would never come to an end. You understand that? That is the Messiah, right? That is the Jewish hope in the Messiah, that there would be a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel forever and ever. That is the one they called the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one. Now, that point, Peter didn't need to argue with the Jews. They all agreed with that. So that's point three. I can go past that now to, number, uh, to the fourth point in Peter's argument here which is given us in verse 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, or you should read the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Well, says Peter, David was not talking about himself. We know that because he died, was buried, and his body is still in the grave. We know where his grave is. He was speaking about the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to rise from the dead. Now, that's the fourth point in Peter's argument, and it's a critical one. Because now the fifth point is really, there's nothing profound here, right? Basically, what Peter is saying is that when we've found the man who has risen from the dead, you've found the Messiah. You follow me there? When you've found one who's risen from the dead, kneel at his feet, because that is the Messiah King whom we've all been expecting and waiting for. And so now, I think the fifth point in Peter's argument is not difficult, right? You, you know where he's going. But you see that in verse 31. In verse 31. I'm sorry, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. And what does it say in the rest of that verse? See, now this I can't say to you. But Peter could say it to his audience. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. In other words, Peter can say to the people he's preaching to, you all saw Jesus die on the cross. Maybe not all of them, but many of them would have. They certainly would have heard of it. He was put in the grave. And we are all witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead again. We saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified and buried. And you saw it with your very own eyes. 
Now, therefore, Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And David said that the man who rises from the dead, that's the Messiah. And when you find one who's risen from the dead, you found the Messiah. That is the one to whom you should bow and say, this man is Lord and Christ. That's Peter's quotation of Psalm 16. Well, my friends, the result of Peter's preaching there, the result of Peter's preaching there is, is, is immediate and, and dramatic, may I say. Because our text tells us in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, pierced to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see, my friends, the truth of what they had done to their Messiah. Remember, Peter is speaking to Jewish people here. The truth of what they had done to their Messiah now begins to sink into their brain. That truth begins to dawn on them that they had crucified their own Messiah King. And that truth, my friends, falls into their heart like a bomb, you might say. And when that realization comes into their hearts with power, they are cut to the heart. They are pierced to the heart. The conviction of the Spirit of God sets in with force. And they see themselves as lost before God. They must be lost. This must be the end of them. God is going to pour forth His wrath and judgments upon them. The curse of God is going to come down upon them with power. They can expect nothing else. They crucified the Lord of glory. Peter's logic, and of course that logic set home to their heart by the power of the Spirit of God, is it cannot be dismissed. There's no way to wiggle out of it. The sword of God is placed over them by the preaching of Peter. And they see it and they acknowledge it. And they cry out, is there anything we can do? Is there any hope for us whatsoever? And the wonderful preaching of Peter comes, repent, verse 38, and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. My friends, there's something very striking here in the original language of the Scripture. If you look with me at verse 49, you'll notice that it says, for the promise is for you. But in the Greek language, the word order is slightly different. Uh, maybe you, you know that in the Greek language, right, when the, uh, when the writer or the author wants to emphasize something, he'll put those words at the front of the sentence. Well, if you look at verse 39, you see those words, for you, right? It says, for the promise is for you. Now, those two words, for you, in the Greek language, are right at the front of the sentence. So to put it in, in rather awkward English, right? It says, for you, the promise is, and for your children. And what that means is that Peter, in his preaching here, is emphasizing that for you people, for you there is a promise. This blessed promise that if you repent of your sins and take refuge in Jesus Christ, all your sins will be forgiven you. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the general promise of the gospel that goes forth in all preaching, in, 
in many different ways and varieties and with different words. Joel, you remember, previously had said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same promise, just different words. But my friends, what is so striking here is the for you. Because think about the people to whom Peter is preaching. Peter is preaching to people who very well may have participated in the crucifixion of Christ themselves. These were the very people who cried out. Do you remember what they cried out? Some of the things they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And maybe there's another person, dear congregation, who's sitting and listening to Peter thinks, but what about me? I said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. My friends, most striking of all, perhaps there was one there who said, I said something else. When I stood at the cross, when I stood before Pilate's judgment seat, I said, his blood be on us and our children. Do you remember that? Remember that when when they said that about Jesus? They cried out, His blood be upon us and our children. Oh, friends, can you imagine the awful conviction that must have been set home to their heart when they realized the things they had said, what they had done when they participated in the very crucifixion of Christ. But my friends, that's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle today is the amazing grace of God that comes to those people and that Peter can say now to you, for you, for you, there is a promise. Now, if Peter had said, for you, there is a promise that you will be sent off into outer darkness eternally for your sin, for the wickedness of crucifying the Lord of glory, that would have made sense. No miracle there. That's what we would have expected. That's certainly what they deserved. But Peter comes and he says, for you, there is a promise. For you, there is a promise. Repent and be baptized. In other words, identify yourself with the, with the people of God, with, with Jesus Christ. Take refuge in the blood of Christ and all your sins will be forgiven you and you too can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My friends, that's a, that's a staggering truth, isn't it? What Peter tells those people. Can you, can, you, can you tonight place yourself in their shoes a little? And think what that must have been to hear those words from Peter. For you, there is a promise. My friends, I want to Move now to my points of application here. My first point of application is this. I want to say something about Jesus' resurrection. I made this point somewhat already, but I want to emphasize again, my friends, that the resurrection is so important to us. And Peter tells us why, right? Because in the sermon he said that confessing that Jesus rose from the dead is basically the same thing as saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. And then in this point of application, my friends, I want you to reflect upon that. That as Christians, when we say, I believe that Christ rose from the dead after three days and ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, what we are saying is that Jesus is Lord. And that's why the the resurrection is such a crucial part of the logic. And that's why, my friends, why it is so repulsive, not just to the Gentiles and the Jews of that day, 
but to the people of, in our day. That to confess that Jesus is Lord is something that no carnal, secular person ever wants to do. Because I want to be my own boss. I want to write my own story. I want to strike out my own path. I want to make my own way. I do not want to be dependent upon God. Our own natural heart says, I will not have this man to rule over me. But the blessing of God's grace, my friends, is that when the Spirit of God brings us to confess that Jesus rose again on the third day, that is the Spirit of God bringing us to the point where we confess Jesus is Lord. Those two can never be separated. Anybody who confesses that Jesus has risen from the dead must also confess that Jesus is Lord. That's my first point of application. That is something for us to take with us tonight. I move now to my second point, which is this, this, conviction. Conviction. Peter says to these people, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, my friends, none of us stood at the foot of the cross and hurled insults at Jesus. None of us pounded the nails into his feet or to his hands. None of us stood at the, at the uh, judgment seat of Pilate and said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And yet, my friends, you and me are the crucifiers of Christ. And I could say to you, my friends, as I could say to myself, your sins put Christ on the cross. Do you believe that this evening? It's not the Romans. It's not the Jews who crucified Christ. It was your sins, my friends, and my sins. How easy it is to point to the Jews. How easy it is to look at them and to lay the blame for the crucifixion of Christ on them. No, my friends, Christ came into this world to give his life a ransom for many. And we, as the people of God, count ourselves amongst that many. And therefore I say tonight, my friends, and may it be to your conviction, you crucified the Lord of glory. Let that thought, my friends, sink into your heart. And I pray to God that the Spirit sets it home with the same power that he did back on the Pentecostal day when Peter was preaching. And that we too would realize that if we had our rights, if God did to us what was our due, he would cast us off from his presence forever and forever. That is the conviction that is set home to us. My friends, this is true biblical religion. And this is biblical preaching. And any religion that would preach to you that we should feel good about ourselves, that you should esteem yourself very highly, and that God loves you no matter what you do, and that God is always on your side, He's always there for you. My friends, that's not biblical preaching, is it? Peter gives us this very unwelcome comment, this very unwelcome preaching. You crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified your own Christ. And when that conviction, my friends, takes hold of our heart, then we're ready for my third point of application, which is this promise. Because now to those people who see the gates of heaven locked tight against them, and who expect to be turned into eternal torment because they crucified the Christ. God comes in the preaching of the gospel with this beautiful promise for you. My friends, I, I hope that strikes you tonight 
in the same way as it struck those who Peter was preaching to on the Pentecostal day. For you, for those whose sins have put Christ to death, there is a promise of the gospel that if you will repent and if you will hate that sin and turn and take refuge in the wounds and the blood and the cross of Christ, there is a full forgiveness for you. That means I can say as a preacher of the gospel this evening that no matter what you may have done in your life, no matter how ugly the sins you may have committed, there is a promise for you, for me. May I say it this evening, dear friends, that in those words, for you, the whole gospel is contained. For you. You know, Peter learned those words from Jesus himself. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. For you. Now, if you have no need for a Savior, my friends, if you do not see yourself as guilty this evening, if the law of God and if the preaching of the gospel has never cut you to the heart, then the promise of the gospel also means nothing to you. But if, my friends, the Spirit of God has set home that truth with power to your soul, then the promise of God becomes something infinitely precious and something that you never can live without in your life. And you must have it. And it's your only hope of salvation. And in the last place, my friends, application number four is this call. Because here is this conviction. And I pray that God has set that conviction home to your own heart. And here is the promise of the gospel. And now Peter says, come. Take that promise. Cast yourself upon that promise with everything that you are. Take refuge in that promise as your only hope for salvation. No one is excluded. No one has sinned themselves apart or uh, too far for this promise. No one here this evening can exclude themselves. This promise is for you. And my friends, for those in our midst then, uh, and for us as believers, it's no different. It's the same preaching, isn't it? Now, if there's someone here this evening who is not a believer, who is unconverted, well, in a, in a special way, that promise is for you. That for the first time in your life, you would take hold of it and find forgiveness in Christ. But as believers, my friends, this preaching is for us, for you. I pray that this evening we would have a fresh sense of the glory of the gospel. That for you, that Peter calls us, that God calls us in the preaching of the gospel to cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. My friends, I want to bring to your attention another person that we meet in the book of Acts. We read about someone else who knew Jesus very well. In Acts 1 and verse 16, the apostles are speaking about Judas. Think about Judas this evening with me, my friends, as we think about Peter calling these people to cast themselves upon this promise. I want to place before you the person of Judas because Judas lived and worked with Christ for years. He heard many times from the mouth of Jesus, this promise is for you. It's for you, Judas. And yet when Judas came to the end of his life and he betrayed the Savior, he literally participated in the crucifixion of Christ. He felt the anguish of what he had done, the guilt of what he had done, 
he took the silver that he had gotten for betraying Jesus, he threw it at the feet of the priest and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. But that man, my friends, and listen closely now this evening, with all his anguish, with all his guilt, he never came to the Savior. He never came to Jesus Christ. And so we have in the book of Acts a graphic description, my friends, a graphic description when it says in verse 18 that this man, with the reward of his wickedness, fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. A visible depiction, my friends, of those people who even with the torment of guilt upon their conscience never come to the cross of Christ. They hear the call. They see the promise. They're even convicted of it. But they never come. They never come to that place where they bow before the cross of Christ and take refuge in that promise, that blessed promise. And so, my friends, the preaching of the gospel comes to you. It comes to the children in our midst this evening. It comes to the young people. This call, my friends, that you never can ignore in your life, whether you've been a believer for many, many years or whether you've never been a believer in your life, the call comes to you tonight. Whatever you might think of these things, take refuge in Christ. You never can find forgiveness in anything except Christ. And the picture of Judas, I hope that, I hope that picture stays with you, my friends, as an example given to the church of all ages of someone who never came to the Savior. Now, in much happier terms is the last verse of what we read this evening. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We have the one example of Judas. But my friends, I can set before you also this evening these 3,000 people who came to the Savior, who had all the guilt on their conscience, knew that they deserved damnation, and yet they found forgiveness in the wounds of Christ, in that blood, in that cross. They repented of their sins, and they went home that evening assured that God was their Father, and that they were the children of God. My friends, that's the happy ending of the gospel that we have in this passage this evening. But I pray, my friends, that all of us would be able to keep these things in our minds. Judas and the 3,000. May God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, what a solemn warning it is to us this evening. The awful picture of Judas, with all his guilt and with all his anguish, taking his own life and coming before the throne of Jesus Christ with no blood, no atonement, and being dismissed from your presence forever into the place where hope never comes. But also, Lord, what a glad sound of the gospel we can hear. That for those who crucified Christ and for those who confess that sin, there is this glorious promise. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I pray for the brothers and sisters who are gathered with us this evening. Lord, we don't know them, but you know them. And I pray, Lord, that everyone, whatever their profession of faith may be or lack of it, that this evening, Lord, they would have a fresh sense of the glory and the beauty of the gospel. And that this promise is for me. And that this evening, I cast my whole soul upon this promise. For time 
and for eternity. Lord, what a happy day that will be when we come before your holy judgment throne and when we shall hear, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Lord, we long to see our children taking hold of this promise for themselves. And I pray, Lord, that it may be the case that we might rejoice, Lord, as, a people of, as your people to walk together, arm in arm, through this life, which is so often a valley of tears. But with this promise in our hands, Lord, we feel we can face everything. Lord, please bless and keep us then and make us to be good and faithful soldiers for Jesus Christ. In his blessed name we pray. Amen.